We believe fundamentally, I would say, that as international education organizations, that through the work that we do, that there is really the potential to transform the world that we're in. That notions of mutual understanding, notions of how we think about differences as an asset and not as a deficit or a threat. Hey, Garish, it's great to see you again. Another episode of Destiny Benders. Really excited to introduce this one today. But first, let's talk about you. I hear you're off to India next week again with Jen Next. What are you going to do? Another trip leading another undergrad recruitment trip for a couple of weeks in North India. I've lost count of how many trips I've led, but I think it's like almost 50 or maybe slightly over 50 now. So Really? That many? Yeah, that many. You know, it's funny. Every time I get ready for the trip, I say... Oh, I'm going. It's a long trip. And you know, the you know, the planes and the trains and the and automobiles and all of that. But I get there. It is so much fun just seeing the students and all the food. You know, I love to eat. So yeah, and I'm looking I forward see your to pictures, it. your food yeah, shots on Facebook. <laughs> definitely. And how was Pi Live? You didn't you just wrap that up? We did. We this week we had the Pi Live Europe on Tuesday and Wednesday in London, and it was great. It was a, a success by all accounts, and we were happy with it as as the Pi people, and I think all the attendees and delegates and sponsors and exhibitors also had a great time and felt like it was really good good, good sessions um, and lots of good networking. But it's tiring. I feel exhausted now because you're on your feet for like twelve hours a day. So I'm pooped. You should do it on the fourteenth of March every year. Why? Pi day. What? Pi day? Oh, man, that's such a good idea. Tell Amy to move it to the 14th of March every day on Pi Day, Pi Live UK. <laughs> but anyway, I'm really excited for the guest today. Uh, but this is going to be our uh, last episode before spring break, right? So this is the 20th episode of season two. We're going to take a break after this for a couple of weeks because I'm traveling, you're traveling, and we'll come back at the end of April. And our guest today uh, is Fanta Aw. She is our new uh, executive director and CEO of NAFSA. So uh, she's an amazing woman. I've known her for a dozen years. Uh, just great energy. So I'm really looking forward to it. Have you met her? Probably not. I have not. I have not. I certainly know who she is and, and have you know read about her, but I don't know her personally. So I'm looking forward to today's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to Destiny Benders. Today, our guest is Fanta Aw, who is the executive director and CEO of NAFSA. Fanta, so good to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here with you, Grish. Thank you. And it's wonderful to meet you, Fanta. Thank you so much for taking the time out of what must be a very busy schedule to chat with us today and really talk about your journey into international education. So our podcast, Destiny Vendors, is all about international educators who are changing lives and bending destinies with the work that they do, which all of us do every day in some small way or large way or another. So we'd love to hear from you. What got you started on this path into international education? Where was that impetus for you to make a career and a life out of this field? Well, thank you. And it's wonderful to meet you, Jessica, as well. Um, I often tell people that my journey or foray into international education started at the age of seven. At the age of seven, I, I, was, I was born in Mali, originally from Mali, West Africa. Both of my parents are from Mali as well. Uh, but at the age of seven, we moved to Liberia. 
And I went to French schools, to the lycée in Liberia. And from there, we moved to the United States when I was 12 um, for about five years. Um, and then after that, we lived in Kenya. And I graduated from the French lycée in Nairobi and then came back to the U.S. Um, for to do my undergraduate studies. So I often tell people that that journey and the bug uh, related to international really education, I didn't have the word for it then, um, was really starting at the age of seven, going through the lycées and really being in very international and global settings. I was, you know, sort of in a little bit under the impression that that sort of was what the world was, um, only to find out very quickly that in fact, no, that is not the case. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that experience. And that's the starting point is really just my own personal journey of my own education, the educational systems that I was in. Um, that brought me to the United States and came in like many other international students, um, wanted a place that would give me a home and found my home in this instance at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, came in again like many international students. I was going to study in an area that would give me a global orientation, would allow me to pack my suitcase and move anywhere and have that flexibility. Um, and so translation, I majored in business accounting specifically as an undergraduate student. And it was through that that I really, again, really always felt at home within an international environment. I never thought that I would go into the world of international education, really didn't even know what the profession of international education really was. Fast forward after my undergraduate, realized that's not what I wanted to do, not unusual, uh, went back to do my graduate work. Uh, but I remembered as an undergraduate student working at the front desk of the international student office. And that was really, um, I think, a pivotal moment for me because it allowed me to then interact with all of the international students who were on my campus at the time. And I would also then learn about immigration regulations, which I was very interested in because I needed to know about all of the regulations related to international students because I was one myself. Um, that was my first journey into understanding that there was such a profession and that within that profession, you had people who were in advising, who were in programming and so forth. Um, and I was the direct beneficiary of that. And so I understood what it meant to be the beneficiary of that international education sort of framework. And it was when I came back for graduate school that I started to work on a part-time basis. And then from a part-time basis, moved to a full-time basis within the Office of International Student and Scholar Services, and then moved my way to becoming the director of the International Student Office at the time. Um, I did that for close to almost 15 or so years. And in that process, move on to take on other roles within the university and ended up spending 33 years of my professional life at American University. And it was through my work with the International Student and Scholar Services Office that I discovered NAFSA. Um, like many others, you know, I kept hearing this is the profession. And as a profession, there are standards of practice. This is where you find your network. And I ended up going at a regional conference. And from a regional conference, saw this incredible network of professionals from around the country uh, who were there at the time and learned about the different areas of international education from international student advising, of course, to education abroad, to international enrollment management, to strategic partnerships. And the list went on and really realized that there is such a thing as a profession and as a profession with standards, as a profession with networks. And that became sort of the beginning of really thinking of this as from my, my moving from my own personal experience to then thinking of this as a profession. Um, and it spoke to me. It spoke to me because it was my story. It spoke to me because there was a network of people uh, who I could relate to. 
And he spoke to me also because I saw this as an opportunity to serve, as an opportunity to have small impacts in the ways that I could in the higher education sector. And so that's a little bit of sort of my my journey to how I got to international education. It's been quite a journey, Fanta. And I mean, I've known you for you know, a dozen years or so and watching all the work you've done. And obviously, you're in such an amazing, important role at NAFSA right now. We'll get into that, but I still want to gotta dig into a little bit about you. You said it start your journey started at seven, but as you were growing up, what were you thinking you wanted to be? I mean, who was Fanta back in those days? And you got to school, you're like, all right. I'm going to go into business, but clearly that's not what you wanted. But what was the driving force behind you moving to the U.S., going to college, what you're going to study, all of that? So, you know, at the age of seven, you know, what was in my mind was, you know, came from a country where at the time um, the political situation was pretty challenging. And so we were among the fortunate people who were able to kind of be overseas as a result of that. And frankly, because of my dad's profession, he was initially with the United Nations and then with the World Bank. Um, and so that's what really took the family from Liberia to Washington to then um, Kenya. And then when I graduated from high school, they moved to Rwanda and they were in Rwanda. And so I got a chance to see Rwanda as well. And so that was really the journey, the profession of my dad that took us to different places. Who was Fanta at the time? I think, you know, the way I would describe myself is someone who always believed in infinite possibilities. Maybe a, somewhat a bit contagious in that I think I got that from my father, who's a, the optimist in life and really believe that if you work hard enough, but also if you really have aspirations and you can find your purpose, that as a result of that, you really can be allowed to dream and you can be allowed to dream big. Um, so when I think of Fanta, you know, I often go back to friends that I know when I was seven, when I was 12. And there's something that seems to be a common thread among those. And they often have reminded me of this, which was I would bring people together. They would describe me as a connector of people, right? Um, there was always a group of people that I would be engaged with. And I would bring those groups of people to other groups of people who would not be interacting with each other. So I often, often was that broker among different parts of my uh, of the lycée. And many of the friends often will say, oh, yes, you introduced me to X. Or, you know, it was through those interactions that we got to know X, Y, and Z. And so I do think that that's been a thread, which is relationships are very important to me. I believe I'm a very curious person. And I believe that there's something unique and interesting about people and that everybody has a story. And so if you ask me who's Fanta, Fanta is a curious person who is always there trying to figure out what is the story? What is that unique story? And how do then do we connect that unique story to other stories? Um, and what does that mosaic look like? I think there's that innate curiosity in me that has always been there. That's one of the things about Fanta. The other thing is that I'm one who really believes in exploring lots of different things. I have a lot of areas of interest, right? It's not an accident that, you know, did my undergraduate in accounting and business then went on and did my master's in public administration with a focus in organization development. Then went on and did my doctorate in sociology while I was working in the field of international education. And I moved from international education to then going into the area of student engagement because I wanted to understand the student experience writ large. That then led me to go into the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion with work on inclusive excellence, which then led me to then come back and think about you know undergraduate enrollment and so forth. So you know, I often say to people, when you look at my story or you look at my history, professional history, it's that it hasn't been a straight path. 
There's been multiple forks around the road, along the road, and it's not by accident. I think that is a determinant of curiosity, wanting to stretch myself in both my learning and really wanting to bring the different parts together, which sometimes may not be innate for people to see what is the connection point of them. But I see that. And I often tell people that I see the world in, in a puzzle. I'm always looking at things from the perspective of a puzzle. There are different parts of the puzzle and how do you put them together? And when you put them together, what is the story that is trying to tell? So that's a little bit about me. Absolutely. I mean, I think Girish and I would 100% agree with everyone has a story and an interesting story and a story to tell. And that's what we're trying to capture here in uh, our podcast, Destiny Benders. Everybody has a story and we love listening week after week to our guests because we find out so many things. And I think that, yeah, nobody's life is normal. There's no one path. And it's so exciting to figure that out. And I guess for, for me, listening to your journey, and you said you did your doctorate in sociology. Was was that yes. correct? Yeah. I mean, that yeah. the stories there that come out of studying, you know, that's that really is about stories, isn't it? And now yes. that you're with NAFSA, your path has, it really has led you to, to where you are today. I mean, everything that you have done, it seems like this is the natural place where you should be. <laughs> Do you feel like that's the case and, and that, you know, that it makes sense for you to be there now? No, Jessica, it's a, it's a great question. And I've, you know, and I'm of two minds, right? On one hand, I believe that nothing ever happens by accident. Um, as a person of faith, I believe that nothing happened by accident. I do believe that given that, that it's not an accident, that I'm in this role at this time and at this juncture of my professional life. Um, with that said, I also believe that, you know, the path to how we get to places often really relies on one, the, the willingness to be open, being open to new experiences, being open to uh, taking risk in life. Right. And knowing that in taking those risks in life, that it will probably in the process, you will learn and you will grow. When I think about, you know, careers and things that I've tried during my lifetime, it's been things that perhaps I had never really imagined. But when that door opened, curiosity was always the thing. It was like, OK, there's this door that's open. I'm not sure what's there, but let's explore. Let's give it a try. And in that process, I've always found that you learn tremendously. And I've and I've also believed that sometimes the best lessons in life is through failure, right? You try something and you don't, you're not necessarily good at it. And you realize, you know what? I give it a try. And in that process, I discover something about myself and I discover something about the world in this process. So it is to me, when I think about from that girl who was seven years old to now this person who's in her mid fifties, and I think of that trajectory in retrospect, Yes, NAFSA very much fits within that. It is a natural part of the journey to now be at a place like NAFSA because it brings together all of my different worlds, right? It brings together all of my different worlds in a way that, again, puts together that mosaic that I keep talking about. And so, but I also think there's a reason why I'm here now in this specific moment, post-pandemic, with a world that is changing, a field that is changing tremendously, and we as individuals and as the collective profession are, is changing a lot, right? So there's something about this specific moment that speaks very much to me. Changing the world. I mean, connecting people, changing the world. That's NAFSA's slogan, right? So I guess in many ways, you, you described yourself as a connector. 
and you're talking about changing the world. So let's talk a little bit about your role at NAFSA. What are some of the challenges that you see coming in post-pandemic into international education, leading the world's largest international education organization? What are your top priorities? I'm sure there's a laundry list, but what are some three top priorities that you have? Please tell us what your vision for NAFSA is going forward. Great question, Girish, and thank you for, for that question. I would say, um, if I were to summarize it into three big buckets, first and foremost is partnership. I've come to realize in everything I've had to do up to now that you really get to a better place together. And so this piece around partnership is something that I very very much believe in and I think is foundational and fundamental. And what do I mean by partnership? I believe that organizations such as NAFSA, like any other organization, in order to get to where it needs to go next, the only way that it can do that is through partnership with others. You learn with others and you are stronger together. And so that means working in partnership with lots of other organizations that may be doing similar work or that may be doing work that is a bit differentiated. And the question that we need to be able to ask ourselves is, where, what is the state of the field and where are the opportunities for this field for the next generation that we are responsible for shaping, for that we are responsible for setting the course for, right? So partnership is the first and foremost one that comes to mind. The second uh, that I've been talking a lot about is that the center of gravity has shifted. And the truth of the matter is it has, shift, it has been shifting for quite a while. Perhaps in some ways, folks have not been paying as much attention to it, um, but this is a reality. And so as an organization that is situated in the United States, the United States relationship to the rest of the world has evolved exponentially. Where we are in 2023 is now where we were 10 years ago. And the world is moving and the world has been moving all along. This center of gravity shifting means how do we think about the world of international education overall and who are the folks that we really do need to be spending time with, understanding and learning from and with. And as someone who is from the global South, that is something that is incredibly important to me. It is both important to me personally and professionally. And so as I think about NAFSA and I think about organizations that are situated in the global North, the question is, how does the global North engages with the global South? What should be the reciprocity of our relationship to the global South? And what can we learn from the global South that can inform our thinking, our worldviews, and our notions about where the world is, but also more fundamentally where international education potential might be? That's a second part of, of it for me, which is recognizing that the center of gravity has shifted and that that is not a threat, but it is an actual opportunity. And it's an invitation for more robust, authentic, reciprocal partnerships. So that's the second part of it. The third part of this is, what does the next generation of the field looks like? NAFSA will be celebrating 75 years. There is a story there, and there's a powerful story there, and it's a story of change and reimagining throughout NAFSA's 75 years. For me, coming in now is, what will be the story that we will want to tell 75 years from now? We will not be here 75 years from now. But what is the story that we will want to tell? And in telling that story, we need to construct it in a way that we're thinking about the future and the future in mind. And it is a future that we have yet to imagine. We will see and we will find that where we are today and our ability to be forward-looking 
will require the willingness to take some different risk and the willingness to shift our paradigms and our mindset. And that is the gift that we could give to the next generation, working with the next generation in mind. Those are the three things, partnership, center of gravity shifting, and how we think about that, the global south and global north relationship. The third is, what is the forward-looking future outlook as we think about the next generations who will be engaged with international education? How do we position those pieces together? And what could be the role of NAFSA in partnership with others to figure out those big questions? Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I plan on being around for another 75 years. So, <laughs> well, you, you know, you have a point because given the medical, you know, the medical field and the advances in the medical field, you might very well be around, you know, 75 years from now. My main question to you is what will be the quality of life 75 years from now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You might be around, but the question is how important is that quality of life? I think that quality of life is quite important, personally. <laughs> 100%, 100%. Maybe we'll all be living on some other planet. Who knows? And hopefully that planet planet will be healthy, given what's going on with our own planet right now, right? I mean, you know, we have some major challenges talking about our planet. I have a question. I was listening to you talk, and one of the things you said before uh, about NAFSA, and one of the reasons why you joined was as you started to find your way in international education, it was an organization that had professional standards. It was the professional organization for people in international education, kind of setting the bar, upholding certain maybe policies and regulations around international education. But of course, it's a U.S. institution, isn't it? It's a U.S. organization fundamentally, I suppose, because it was founded in the United States. And it has grown exponentially, you know, even in the 20 some odd years since my first NAFSA it is now a lot bigger and a lot more international. Attendees from literally all four corners of the world attend the NAFSA annual conference. It's not possible to have an international organization to create standards and policies and regulations for the field of international education for the entire globe because there's just so many differences, right, everywhere. But NAFSA is almost seen as as that, isn't it? That kind of an organization that people look up to. But of course, there's EAIE, there's APAIE, there's AIEC in Australia. So there are, there, you know, there are these organizations for the different geographical areas of the world. And then you mentioned partnerships just now, and that's one of your, your maybe three big buckets in your tenure at um, NAFSA. Is there thinking to join up these various international education professional organizations that are essentially, you know, have very similar goals and missions and visions, um, but working in disparate parts of the world, quite rightly. Is that even possible? I mean, I don't even know if I'm, I'm not suggesting it is, but what do you, what is your thinking on that? Jessica, I think it's a fair question. And I'm sure it's a question that has come up in lots of different settings. Um, and you mentioned the fact that we have sister organizations in Europe, in Asia, um, in Africa, in South America, and in lots of different places, right? And again, I, I do not believe that those, organiza- those organizations came in response to needs that were there. And they're very strong organizations doing really important work in the, in the areas that they're in. And so to your question of, you know, what is the, um, the possibility of those coming together? Um, the way I, c- I think about it is that I have spoken about the big tent and the fact that there is room for all of us. This is not an either or, it's an end as far as I'm concerned. And the reason why I believe that there's a room for all of us is because our ability to think of the local and the global 
and to constantly think of the relationship of the local and the global is quite important. The, the framework and the premises that we have here, maybe in the United States, we should not be arrogant to assume that that is applicable to the rest of the world. And I think we've learned that painfully in the world of development and many other sectors that have tried to kind of think about those models and approaches. And so it is incredibly important that there's be space and that there be an uplifting of these various organizations that exist around the world, and they're doing incredibly important work. Where an organization like NAFSA comes in, in partnership, is to say, how do we learn together, and what can we learn from each other, and where can we partner in ways that are intentional and strategic, where we have common interests. And that common interest is on multiple levels. We believe fundamentally, I would say, that as international education organizations, that through the work that we do, that there is really the potential to transform the world that we're in. That notions of mutual understanding, notions of how we think about differences as an asset and not as a deficit or, or threat, that the role of peace in global engagement are things that are absolutely necessary. And human security is necessary wherever you are in the world. And that education plays a fundamental role. And we would go even further in saying that international education plays a critical role. Borders are porous today. The notion that you can live in one place and that you're there for shelter from the rest of the world is simply not the case. Technology has shown that. Technology has connected us in ways that were unimaginable decades ago. We have seen you could be sitting in, you know, a village in pick a place and you have access to technology that opens up your world in ways that are fundamental. And international education has that power and that potential. So for NAFSA, the goal is not, you know, and again, coming from the global South, I'm very aware and very mindful of colonization and what that has done. And so I believe that the roles of organizations is to understand where can we be of service and where can we be of service for the greater good? And in this instance, it is to be in partnership with and not necessarily to observe other people's, you know, sort of work that's happening. So is there a role for each one of these? Absolutely. Have we been partnering before coming into this role? When I was president of NAFSA, that was one of my primary mandate was I needed to forge relationship of trust, respect and reciprocity with my sister organization's leadership in different parts of the world. We would talk about our common goals, our common aspirations. We would also talk about the things where we fundamentally had very different challenges. And those challenges look different, but we also can learn from each other. And that is the opportunity that it affords us. And you're correct. NAFSA, we're based in the United States, but in our conferences and even our membership, it is incredibly diverse. It is not only U.S. folks who are part of our members or who come to our conferences, they're from all around the world. But also in coming from all around the world, they're coming from around the world, not only to meet their colleagues in the United States, but to meet their colleagues all over the world. That is the power of the global network. And if we can provide that platform, that's incredibly important. But we should not misconstrue that platform as this is where everything happens. It is not the center of it, right? We are facilitator of it. We're a convener of it, but we are not the center of it. And I think there's something to be said about the importance of that because it's people to people connection that works. And organizations happen to be the structure that allows us to do that. Thank you, Fanta. I mean, I, for one, am really excited that those are your 
uh, top priorities. Um, so I want to ask you a couple more questions about that. So we talked about partnerships and you talked about the, the global south and the, the shifting of the center of gravity. Uh, and I have a couple of questions. So it's going to be a long one. About partnerships, yeah, there are these usual suspects, right? API, EAIE, and, and all the alphabet soups around the world. But who are those people, organizations who are outside of that tent, uh, or maybe not even in the same ballpark? How do we bring them into the tent? Because I, I believe uh, investing in international education is beneficial for everybody, right? Not necessarily just for universities, not just for international education organizations or service providers like GenX Education, but it's important for a lot of different constituents. So what is NAFSA going to do? What is your effort going to be to try to bring some of these other unusual suspects into the tent? One, and then you talk about Global South and engaging. From my perspective, I've been at NAFSA for several years now, and people that I speak to that are not in the U.S., particularly from the Global South, even though we'd like to think of NAFSA as an international education organization based in the U.S., there's still a perception out there that NAFSA is a U.S. organization just doing stuff globally. So we got to change the perspectives. I think you have a tall order here to try to do some of that. Talking about access, talking about availability. When I think about it, coming to a NAFSA conference, which is an exciting platform, I wait for it every year. As a matter of fact, Jessica and I met at a coffee shop at NAFSA for the first time ever. There's so many other issues around access and you know networking and professional development for all those people around the world who are maybe not as resourced to be able to participate in what NAFSA has to offer. And it does offer a lot. How are you going to fix that? So I, I think those are really important questions. And, and I think about this all the time. And I would say two things about the tent, going back to this notion of the, of the big tent. When I think of partnership, partnership has to be beyond those who already believe fundamentally in the value of international education, right? It has to be beyond the sister organizations and associations. There are stakeholders who are doing work that I would qualify as very much international education. We just don't call it that uh, because they would call it something else, but it's really very much that. And it's the business sector, right? The business business entities are doing tremendous work. Technology um, organizations that are startups are doing tremendous work. Think about folks in the medical professions and what happens. Think about all these different sectors, Garish, and all of them are engaged in international education. In multiple ways, they're translating our work on an everyday basis, right? And the students that we're educating, guess what? We're educating these students and we say that we want them to be global citizens They're in all these different professions. We're not educating them to all be international educators, right? Because we understand and we realize we need to educate them for all parts of the workforce. So once we educate them, they too have become very much part of this big tent. And so when I think about that, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is to bring to the table those who are not the usual suspect. We don't go further if we keep talking to ourselves. And I believe that the way you go further is to invite others in and to in actually invite others who you may consider to be fundamentally different from you. And inviting them into sort of what are this big tent, you also come with a mindset of humility. And it is humility to accept the fact that we have something to learn from all of these areas. And they too may have something to learn from us. That Big Ten concept for me would be, for example, to say, hey, 33 years, I have worked with students from all around the world and the United States. They've gone on to do incredible things in different sectors. I want to have conversations with them and say, you know what? 
whether you're recognizing or not, you're a beneficiary of the work of international education. How do you how do you come together with us to promote this work that we've been talking about? And what is the translational nature of it for the work that you all are doing? Because that's where, for example, in a US-centered work that we are focused on in public policy, this is what will help us advance some of our public policy goals. When the business sector gets in there and talks about the impact of this work on the business sector for innovation, for research, for product development, for consumer behaviors and so forth, there is more likely to be listening when there's many more of us than what may be seen as an echo chamber. So that's an example of the big tent and how I think about the big tent. And there are many things like this, you know, that come up for me. Because again, I come from a non-conventional background. Did not start in international education, like I said, started in business, went into public administration, sociology, inclusive excellence. There's a reason why these different pieces came together and they would normally not speak to international education, yet they, they can and they must. And that's the work that is ahead as I think about the work that we can do. The other piece you talked about, which is around access and inclusion, that is a more nuanced part of the work, right? Um, and it is true that issues of access are prevalent in everything that happens. It is now unique to the work that we do in international education. It's in every sector, right? Whether it's the business sector, whether it's the medical sector, the technology sector, the list goes on. It is continue to be a challenge of how do we increase opportunities for more people? And what would that look like? And what does it take to do that? And we are in a, at a time where I think in order to do that, we need to be willing to try new and different things. NAFSA cannot be at all for everyone, nor should it try to be everything to everybody. What I think NAFSA can do is to do the things that it does incredibly well, and in doing them, asking ourselves the question, who is at the table? Who should be at the table? How do we bring them to the table? but also understanding that if we bring them to the table, the table will need to change because access is not enough without inclusion. And inclusion is not an end into itself without understanding equity. And so there is that continuum there. And that is change management. That requires fundamental change management. It is not something that I'll be able to do in a day, a month, or even a year or so. However, if we do our work well, folks will see that there will be different people at the table. And that table, whether it's the conferences and whether it's whatever work that we're doing. And that is not something that I can do alone. It is not something that NAFSA can do alone. NAFSA is a membership organization. The members have to be able to help drive that. And that's part of what will need to happen. And it may very well mean that in some cases, what we do is we help shore up entities in other parts of the world that can do the work better at a local level, for example, than we could, right? That may be what it takes. It means that with the knowledge that we have, we continue to share that. Understanding that in some cases it may be applicable, in others, the local culture and conditions are such that it may not be as relevant. But our ability to test out new ideas, our ability to pilot some new new things and to see where it leads us becomes important. And this is where we need to we need to rely on the brain trust of members and what I would call friends in different places to help us garner some of those ideas and for us to test out some of those ideas and to then determine what does success look like. So that's the part that excites me because there's a part of me that is very entrepreneurial in that way. And I think often, you know, when we think of the work of international education, 
we think of it as some people who are not in our field will say it's touchy-feely. And there's nothing wrong with touchy-feely. But we need to go from touchy-feely to what I would call really sometimes the hardwire piece of it, right? And the hardwire piece of this is to say, when we do this work well, what does it look like? How is this work in many ways contributing to bettering the human condition and all the different facets of the human condition, right? And pick any critical issues and then asking ourselves, what is the role of international education? The Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, what is the role of international education? Issues of climate change, what is the role of international education? Issues of polarization and extremism that we're seeing around the world and in the United States, what role can international education play within that? Those are the fundamental questions, but we need to move from the questions to then saying, how does that translate on the ground? And when it translates on the, on the ground, what tells us that we're moving in the right direction? Is this improving the quality of lives of people? Is this opening more doors of opportunities for people who traditionally have not had those? That becomes an important part of the work. So yes, it has to be beyond the universities. It has to be beyond what are the usual suspects if we're going to have the kind of impact that we believe international education can have. And I believe we have the right people to help us think through that. We have members, we have friends, we have stakeholders who really care deeply about those issues. Part of my job is to ask the questions, to listen intently for it, and then to be willing with others to test out some ideas. As you were talking, I was thinking about this. You mentioned stakeholders and and working with others and working, obviously, towards achieving those goals. To what degree? So NAFSA is a large organization in the U.S., but you have your regions. You mentioned your first, I think, interaction with, with NAFSA was your, your region. I used to be in Texas, so Region 3 was, was my region, was very involved down there. To what extent do you, as the hub in Washington, D.C., work? how closely do you work with those regions to or get the input, I guess the, the stakeholder input from the people in those regions who are active in NAFSA to come to brainstorm together, to work towards ideas that can perhaps produce not necessarily solutions, but things that you can work towards to achieve. But looking at that larger picture that you just mentioned, you know, climate change, you know, what, how can international education play a role in that? All these different things, how can international education play a role in that? But going deep dive down into just our local regional NAFSAs, can they get involved? How can they get involved? How can you get the input of that? You know, they're all stakeholders in this this whole big picture. It's a great question. And uh, Jessica, as someone who I often say, NAFSA one of the things about NAFSA and NAFSA members that has that has always that that I've always been amazed by is the level of energy and commitment that people have. This is not for folks a profession; it's a calling. That's how I would say it. Um, the passion that I see from NAFSAs is contagious. It really is, and it doesn't matter where you find yourself at any regional level or in any setting that you find yourself, and that's not accidental. And the reason I, I believe it's not accidental is because of the power of that network. And that network really does start at the, at the local level. Most NAFSANs find out about NAFSA at the regional level first and then make their way to the national. And that is incredibly important 
And so the regions are really, in many ways, foundational to who NAFSA is. And the regions are incredibly important to the work that we do. Because on a daily basis and on a regular basis, whether it's through the conferences at the regional level, the network that happens, the meetings that take place, and all of that, and they're also situated many times on on our campuses, right? In this case, in the United States. So they have the pulse of what is going on in the field. And as having the pulse, it's incredibly important for any organization to be able to listen to that, to understand what how that fits within the whole. So to your question of how does NAFSA work with the regions, we work with the regions every day. There are teams here at NAFSA who are dedicated primarily to working with the regions. And so the partnership starts there. And there's something, again, about the local level and the importance of the local level and the authenticity of the local level that is key. As I think about this, this is not one where we sit here in Washington and we dream it up. This is one where you're getting the pulse of what's happening. You're getting the sense of what are the big issues that are going on. And that then translates into strategy. And even with your strategy, you're working with others on how you kind of get there. And so the regions are very important to that. And what often happens, it's also not an accident that a lot of the people starts at the region, they're volunteering their time. Let's also not forget, these are volunteers. These are volunteers who are ready and are constantly there doing everything they can. They lend their knowledge, their talents, their time to the work of the association. NAFSA without its members is not NAFSA. And NAFSA without the, the work of the regions is not NAFSA. That is how I think about the relationship of where we are situated and where the regions are. And so that's one piece that immediately comes to mind for me. The other thing as well is that going back to the topic, you know, that uh, Girish brought up earlier about how we go to the bigger tent. I think that happens also at the regional level. We want the regional levels to be thinking about the business councils that are on the ground there, right? We want them when we think about public policy. Yes, at the federal level, we have to be able to push public policy. But some of the changes we're talking about happens at a local level, right? It is, you know, what is happening in terms of the workforce? What's happening in terms of my immigrants who are in those areas and so forth? And our members are key to helping us create those connection points in the different places in which they are. And I think what's also important and is consistent with what I've been saying is one size doesn't fit all. Regions will have their own particular things that will come up because there are regional focus there. And that is important for us to understand, to know, to respect, and to work with them on those things. So the one size fits all is one of those things that you want to kind of guard against. But with that said, I often think of this as an orchestra. People will ask me, so I see you, what exactly is your job? I say, well, you know what? If I had to make it simple, I think of it as an orchestra and I try to be the conductor. Everyone has an instrument and they play their instrument really well. And beautifully, and they're the expert at their instrument. But it all has to come together as a chorus, and we need to be able to say, how does it sound? That's a bit of how I find my, I see as my role, which is also consistent with the role of the connector, right? You have all these different parts. How you, do you bring them together? And then in bringing them together, what is the story that it needs to be able to tell? That's how I kind of, in very simple terms, define what I see as my role. That is music to my ears, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but 
You know, I, before we started recording, I, I told Fanta, I said, I'm so excited that she's now at the helm of NAFSA for a lot of reasons, uh, but I really mean it. It's very refreshing to hear some of these, Fanta. So good luck to you. And you you talk about members being involved. Uh, you can definitely count on me. I'm sure I'm volunteering Jessica as well, uh, even though she's in the UK, but you can definitely uh, count on us to, to be there uh, to support in your vision. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you, you earlier just briefly alluded to and talked about the students you've worked with. And I'm sure over the years you work with a lot of students. Some probably are doing some amazing things out there. A little birdie told me one of them is a mayor of Cleveland, maybe. is that, I don't know if that's true. Um, so as you reflect back in those years of you know AU and all the work you did, any fond memories, uh, any uh, really cool, important people that you work with that you're going to go tap into now? Are we moving NAFSA conference next year to Cleveland? I mean, I don't know. I'm just asking. <laughs> so it's 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 a great question. Um, I you know I often say I've been incredibly fortunate to have found uh, work that has been a great passion for me, um, and and having you know done that for 33 years. And really, what kept me there for the time that it kept me there were the students. Um, I often say, you know, when I look at our students, when I look at these young people, it gives me so much hope. And there are many times when we talk about all of the things that are going wrong in our world. And all I need to do is literally Garish to walk on the quad at American University and I look around and I'm like, here are all the things that are going right. Because I see these young people full of promise, but more than that, their idealism and the fact that they believe that they can do something about the issues is incredibly heartwarming to me. And it gives me really a lot of hope. And so as I think about that, all throughout my time at American, I've been fortunate to have encountered extraordinary students, whether it's the student who came in at American as a first generation student, maybe coming from, you know, what they would say, Iowa. And they often would describe to me, you know, I came from, you know, farm, you know, farm country, et cetera, and so forth. I came to American University because I wanted to major in politics, and et cetera. And in the process, we'll start talking about, well, tell me about your dreams. Tell me about your hopes and aspirations. And in that process, begin to talk about the possibilities. And among those possibilities is the ability to go and study in a different parts of the world. And after we say to them, it will change your life. It will change your life in the sense that you realize that you're part of such a bigger ecosystem than you ever imagined. So when you ask me, what are some of the fun memories? Whether it is the person who's the mayor of Cleveland, now one of the youngest mayor of Cleveland, or whether it is, you know, the number of students who have been profiled as, you know, youngest of, you know, top 20 of 20 youngest, et cetera. There are many, many of them that I can recount. And for me to know that in their journey, I was able to be part of that journey. And whether it was to sit down with them and listen to what their uh, hopes and dreams were, and in that process, plant a little seed. And to see them just take off. There is nothing more gratifying for an educator than that is when you see, I often say your students do much better than you do. That is the best testimonial to an educator, because ultimately we all, particularly, I think for immigrants, we think about how in the work that we do, it is with the goal and the aspiration of creating a better future for those who come after us. Having seen that, I think becomes really important. And with the number of international students who you know, when my um, announcement came that I was head of NAFSA, I was hearing from students from around the world, folks who I knew 15, 20, 30 years ago, 
who each were telling me their story and their story with me as part of that. And some of which I hadn't remembered. Whether it was Zastun who said, you know what, I sat in your office and I was trying to figure out this immigration issue and you sat with me and we figured it out together. And now I'm doing something in entertainment. I'm doing documentary films and so forth. Those types of things remind me once again of how when we do this work, we do this work understanding that we have a responsibility. And in that responsibility, we do the best that we can. We hope that we have an impact at some point. But ultimately, the people who can tell that story of impact are not us. It is the people who hopefully have been impacted. And that to me is incredibly important. And what I often say to them is that when they tell me that story of impact, it was not an I. It has never been about an I. It's about a we. How did we interact during that period of time? How did we build the confidence of these young people during that period of time? How did we open doors of opportunities when we could during that period of time? More importantly, how do they now as a result of it see the world, experience the world, be in the world? That to me, it is the biggest gift that we can be given in the work that we do. I agree, and but credit is where and credit where credit is due, due. You know, you are a destiny bender. All these people that work in international education are, and you truly are one of them. So we're really, really excited to have you on the Destiny Bender podcast. As we wrap up, we'd like to end on a lighter note. We ask a couple of quick fire questions, so let's kind of quickly do that. What is fun to do for fun? <laughs> oh, well, there are a couple of things. One is for fun. I love to walk. I'm a walker. Um, so I love to walk. I doesn't walk sound like fun at all to me. <laughs> to me, that's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And part of it is also because in walking, you know, particularly where I am now, when I walk, I discover something new every time. I pay attention to something new every time. And again, my curiosity peaks there. And that helps me to clear my brains. It helps me to kind of get to a different space in a different place. So there's something about that. Again, it wouldn't surprise you all as a, as a typical global nomad. You know, one of the things I love to do for fun is travel. I love to travel. I love to discover new places. I love to try different foods. I love to see the different colors, textures, architecture. I just, and I love texture of all kinds, right? So to me, travel is really one of the things that I love to do for fun. And then lastly, for fun, I love to read. I love to read. It takes you to a different place. It sparks your imagination in ways that are just very hard to describe. And no, I'm not on Kindle. I've tried it and it hasn't worked for me. I need to feel the pages. I totally agree with you on that I need to be able one. to turn the pages. I agree and with so you well. that is one of the things that I absolutely love to do. But it's walking with no destination in mind and seeing where it lands me. Traveling to different places in the world and engaging with people. Reading because it sparks my imagination. Well, I'll follow up with my quick fire question based on what you just said. You love to travel and experience new things. And I, I want to just throw in there that my favorite thing to do when I go to a new place is go into a local grocery store. I love traveling and then just finding a grocery store and just yes. looking up and down the aisles and seeing all the different things that I could do. What could I do with this and this and this? Absolutely. So, What's your favorite, where where do you love to travel? What's your favorite place to go to or a favorite place? Maybe not necessarily one. And when you get there, what do you love to do? Oh my goodness, Jessica, this is the hardest question. This is oh, not sorry. fair. This is not a fair question. Because I look at the map 
And I think to myself, oh my, here's a place I've been and I want to go back because I feel like I haven't seen everything of it, right? So I have that bug that's there. And then it's like, God, but the world is so big. There are so many other places I haven't seen. And I'm like, I want to see those. So, oh goodness. So if I had to pick, I would say, and they have lots of for different reasons. I've discovered the Maldives. And in discovering the Maldives, I'm very much a water person. And there's something about the serenity of it. But more than anything, it's the culture and the people. Mm-hmm. Um, really, so that's been one of the places that I've recently discovered and just have a love, love for the people. So that's one that comes to mind. You know, places that I would want to go back to because they bring back my childhood is places like Kenya. You know, I want to go back there because even though I've lived there and I've, you know, I've, I've ventured so many times, but this was, you know, 30 some years ago, 35 plus years ago, and it's changed, right? Places have changed. So that would be one of the things. And then recently, in spending time with friends and talking to them, which was never on the map for me, and now it is pretty high up there on the map, is Iceland. Oh, yes. Iceland. Beautiful. My son. Beautiful. Iceland. Iceland. Go. My son went last March for a school holiday and he loved it. Well, it's, this is one of the place. things, right? Iceland had not been on my on my radar. And yet I've had friends after friends who've gone and they're like, oh, no, you really have to go. There is so much there. You really have to go. And then when I see the photos, I'm like, OK, I'm sold. So 100%. Iceland has come on the list in a way that was not on the list as just an example of it. And what is that? I think to me. It really reminds me about the fact that the world is so vast and we have so much to learn uh, from um, and experience. And that's the exciting part of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And that's a common dilemma, I think, for all of us is wanting to go back to the same places where we enjoyed, but wanting yes. to explore new places and it's never ending. Yeah. All right. Last question as we end yeah. our chat today. Your reaction, either as Fanta or as the head of NAFSA, Chad GPT. It's a great question. And here's talk, talk about an example of one of the areas where you learn. So when Chat GPT came up, you know, and I would hear and I would read up all about, about these issues and I could, you know, I could read up about the fears and all of these things and how it's going to change the world and how it's going to change everything that we do, the threat to, to education and all of these things. And you know where I started? I went and asked my students. I'm reading up a lot on this and I'm a novice at this. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. What do you all think? And again, in their typical fashion, because they're always teaching us as well, they kept saying to me, they were like, you know what? It is not on either or, it's an end. Mm -hmm. It is how we think of the tools that we're given and how we best utilize those tools. And it really allowed me to pause and to think about that. And I would ask, well, tell me more about that. And so again, I think this is one of those tools that has emerged that's been in the planning. We know that there are things that is not, exactly good at doing, right? And so we're reading more about that, but it also can offer opportunities there. And so I come back to this always, which is to say, when change happens, we have two ways of responding to it. We literally freeze in the sense that we're so panicked by it, that we freeze or we embrace the fact that change is coming and is here. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we use it for good? What might be the opportunities for that? And, and and engage different stakeholders in helping us understand. There is not, I would say there's, you know, this binary thinking of it must be really awful or it must be great, you know, and the student, students were really able to speak beautifully to the nuances of it and the potential ways that it will, it can help us. So I'm one who is not panicked about it. It is here. 
right? And so in being here, the question that I think that is ahead of us is knowing that this tool is going to be here and it's going to continue to evolve. How might we best use this to advance the work that we believe is is fundamental? And how do we mitigate for what could be really what has folks have defined as the risk associated with it? Do I think that we're capable of doing that? Yes, there's enough smart people in the world to help us figure that out. On that note, uh, it has been a real pleasure to have you as our guest today, Fanta. Congratulations on your new role. Congrats to NAFSA on 75 years. Here's looking forward Mm -hmm. to the next 75. Thank you so much for your time today. Have a great weekend. And I look forward to seeing you in D.C. in May. And thank you to both of us for this conversation. I really appreciated having the opportunity to speak with you. And congratulations as well on getting to the number of episodes. And I really very much look forward (laughs) to listening in and learning. Thank you. You've been listening to Destiny Vendors. Kirish and I are going to take a spring break for the next couple of weeks. We'll be back at the end of April. 